Well, may I ask you a question as we get started this morning? It's a personal question. I don't want you to answer it out loud, of course, but I want you to formulate an answer in your mind, and I really want you to know what the answer to this personal faith question is. It's a really simple question. Do you believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead? Do you believe that? Is that something that you would claim as a, as a foundational fact of your life? Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Now, your answer to that question will determine so many things about your life. It really will. It will determine your joy as you go through this life. It will determine the way that you're able to navigate through the difficulties and the mountains and the valleys of life and how, you, how you're able to navigate through all of that. It will determine your eternal destiny as well. And so it's not an insignificant question. Do you believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead? In fact, I want to begin our time this morning by just having you jot down in your notes somewhere very quickly three fundamental facts, three fundamental facts about the resurrection of Jesus, okay? Jot these down. First of all, confident belief, our faith in the resurrection or confident belief in the resurrection of Jesus, first of all, is necessary for personal salvation. Let's just begin right there. Confident belief in the resurrection is necessary for personal salvation. Another way to say that is Christian people, truly Christian people, are people who believe in the resurrection. You cannot be a Christian. You cannot be saved and not believe in the resurrection. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 10 and verse number 9, where Paul emphatically stated, if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Jesus said belief in the resurrection is a prerequisite to salvation. So confident belief in the resurrection is necessary for personal salvation. Number two, number two fact, Confident belief in the resurrection sustains us in personal suffering. We all know that this life is marked by moments or seasons, sometimes very long and deep valleys of suffering. And when you go through suffering, you are going to have to do one of two things. You are either going to have to learn to cope and find coping mechanisms to get through the suffering or you're going to have to find hope in Jesus. And there's a vast difference between coping and hoping. And Hebrews chapter number two tells us that Jesus was raised from the dead so that he might comfort those of us who are suffering in any way. Confident belief in the resurrection sustains us in suffering. Third fundamental fact is this. It is that confident belief in the resurrection provides our only hope in the face of death. It is the only thing that will, that will give you hope when you are facing personal death, if you're coming to the end of your life, or when you face the death of someone that you love so much and they pass away. This belief that Christ has conquered the grave, that the grave is not the end, and that Christ has conquered death, that confident belief gives us hope in the face of death. So much so 
that in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that when we hope in the resurrection, we can look at death almost mockingly because he says in 1 Corinthians 15 that we can say, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? That we can mock death as having had the sting or the stinger taken out of it. These three things are fundamentally true. That if you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, you can, by faith in that resurrection, trust in him as your savior. You can be sustained in personal suffering and you can face death with hope. So let me ask you again. Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? It's not an unimportant question. So with all of that, let me welcome you in to week number six of this series. We have been, as you know, for the last five Sundays, and we will conclude next Sunday, this series where we're thinking together about the one incomparable life of Jesus. And our proposition throughout all of these previous five weeks, it will be so again today and next Sunday, our proposition is this. It is that Jesus Christ is the most transformational figure in all of human history. And we have sought to demonstrate this as being factual in our study through these 20 chapters of the Gospel of John. <clears throat> Let me take just a minute and remind you of the things that we've talked about since we began six weeks ago, just to sort of build a platform for us to spring off of today. Those of you who will, who will remember from six Sundays ago, we began by talking about the fact that Jesus is the most transformational figure in human history because he is no mere man. That Jesus is the God-man. Jesus is God in human form or God incarnate, the Bible would say, God in flesh. We learned this in John chapter number one. John says, in the beginning was the word, the word was God, the word was with God and the word was God. And he talks about the glory of this God who became uh, a man. Jesus is God incarnate. That was week one. In week number two, we talked about the witnesses of this fact. The five witnesses of, uh, of John chapter five, where Jesus said, these five witnesses testify to my deity. One was the words of Jesus himself. He claimed to be God. Two was the witness of John the Baptist. Three was the witness of the Father, God himself. Four was the witness of the miraculous works that Jesus performed. And the fifth witness was the witness of scriptures. And so these five witnesses bear uh, witness to the truth of the identity of Jesus. Week three, we talked about the four great promises that Jesus has made and how those four great promises have transformed our lives and transformed the world. John chapter 14 was our, was our uh, text. And Jesus said, I'm going to go away, but I'm coming again to take you to heaven. That's promise one. Number two, I'm going to use you in the meantime greatly. You're going to do greater works than I have done. Number three, I'm going to answer your prayers. And number four, I'm going to be present with you. I'll never leave you alone. Week number five, uh, or week four rather, we talked about Jesus' greatest act of love, his substitutionary atonement for us. We saw it in chapter 15. And then last Sunday, week five, we talked about the crucifixion of Jesus. We were in chapter 19 where Jesus died for us on the cross. Today, we come very logically to chapter number 20 where we will speak of the resurrection of Jesus. 
Let me begin not in chapter 20. I think it would make more sense to begin where we left off last week. Let's pick it up in chapter 19. Look with me in verse number 30, if you will. Where the Bible says, When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, the vinegar wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up the ghost. Jesus is dead in verse 30. Skip to verse 34. Verse 34 says, But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced the side of Jesus, and then forthwith there came out of his side, out of that wound, blood and water. And so really there you have it, right? At the end of chapter number 19, Jesus is dead. He's hanging limply on the cross, his head fallen over, his body now sagging, no more no more trying to breathe, no more resisting the, the pain, no more holding off of the cross. He just hangs there dead. His head is bowed, his breath has stopped, his heart is no longer beating. His side is now wounded with a gaping wound from a spear that went into his side, punctured his heart, and blood and water came out. The sun is dark. And it's over. I mean, there's no more great crowds gathering to hear him teach such kind and compassionate and wise words about the kingdom of God. There are no more crowds assembled on a hillside where he would multiply the fish and the loaves and, and feed the multitudes. That's, that's over. There's no more of Jesus walking up to a a 12-year-old girl who's died and saying to her young damsel, I say unto thee, arise. And she gets up from the dead. That's over. There's no more healing the lepers or healing the lame or opening blind eyes or opening deaf ears. All of those things are done. There's no, there's no more contests or conflict with the Pharisees where Jesus puts them to shame with his arguments and his presentation of truth, all of that is over. And all that remains, really, all that's left at this point in the text is this body of Jesus hanging there as a demonstration, limped and bloodied, a demonstration of the power of Rome to put to death any that would oppose them. And so what happens next well, the next logical thing in chapter number 19 is his burial. Something that, by the way, we don't think a lot about very often. We tend to talk about the crucifixion, and then we jump over to the resurrection, and we oftentimes don't think much about the burial. But it really is an amazing scene that happens at the burial of Jesus. Let me read it to you. Chapter 19, verse 38 says, And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews besought Pilate that he might take the body, take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came, therefore, and he took the body of Jesus. And there came also with him Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night. He brought with him a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a 100 pounds weight. And they took the body of Jesus, and they wound it in linen cloths with the spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now, in the place where he was crucified, 
there was a garden, and in the garden there was a new sepulcher, a new tomb, wherein never a man had yet laid. There they laid Jesus, therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. It's an amazing, amazing scene. Because we know who it was that took responsibility to bury the now dead body of Jesus. We're told in the text, Joseph from Arimathea and a man named Nicodemus, whom we know from John chapter number three, who came to Jesus by night. Do you know what we know about both Joseph and Nicodemus? They're both Pharisees. They're both Jewish religious leaders. And they are both members of the Sanhedrin court, which was the court that condemned Jesus to death. Both of these men were present during the trial of Jesus and they both raised their mild and meek and timid defenses of Jesus in their own way, but they were afraid to be too bold in their defense of Jesus lest it would become clear that they are in fact believers in Jesus. The text tells us they were, at least Joseph of Arimathea is plainly stated as being a disciple of Jesus yet secretly because of his fear of the Jews. And yet these two men who were so afraid to take their stand with Jesus during his life, now in his death, they boldly, in the boldest possible way, they take their stand with the crucified Jesus. And they do it by tenderly ministering to his deceased body. Now, I don't know exactly how you take a body off a cross. Do you? Have you ever thought about it? How do you get this body impaled in wood, impaled on wood? How do you get it down? You've got to pry the nails. You've got to pull the nails out of the wrists and out of the feet. And if the body is hanging, let's say 150, 170 pounds, if the body is hanging limply on the cross, all of that weight is there. So how do you, how do you catch that body as it begins to come free from the cross? I don't know any way to do it other than just, you've just got to embrace it. You can imagine Joseph and Nicodemus, these two secret, timid Scared disciples now in front of everybody watching, tenderly taking down this body of Jesus and lying it on those cloths and wrapping it and preparing it for burial and then carrying it, as the Bible says, to the tomb, which was very near, literally just a few steps away. They took it and they laid it in Joseph's unused, in fact, unfinished tomb. That was Friday afternoon, late in the day, near sunset. That's day one. They rolled the stone in front of the door and Sabbath is coming on. So they all go to their homes and the stone stays in front of the door. And Saturday, the Sabbath day passes. That's day two. And Sunday morning dawns and that dawning of the third day brings on the day that Jesus will, according to the scriptures, rise from the dead. And the text tells us about that, so let's read it. Chapter 20 of the Gospel of John, beginning in verse 1. It's Sunday morning, the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came, when it was yet dark, unto the, unto the sepulcher, the tomb, to see, and she saw the stone taken away from the sepulcher. And so she ran, and she came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, by the way, 
when John writes his account of the life of Jesus, the gospel of John, he always refers to himself in one of two ways or in both of these ways. First of all, as that disciple whom Jesus loved, that's how he refers to himself, I'm beloved of Jesus. And the second way he refers to himself, and you see it in this verse, as the other disciple. So he never calls himself by name. He says that disciple whom Jesus loved or that other disciple. So in verse two says she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple. It's Simon Peter and John himself. She ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. And she said unto them, they have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher and we do not know where they have laid him. Can you imagine the panic in her voice. He's gone. Verse three, Peter therefore went forth along with that other disciple and they came to the sepulcher. Verse four, so they both ran, Peter and John ran together and the other disciple did outrun Peter and he came first to the sepulcher. Now, by the way, can I just stop and insert right here? And I don't want to make light of this uh, because it's such a holy and irreverent passage, but I just love the fact that John, as he writes this, is such a guy in this moment. Because he says, Peter and, and I both ran to the tomb. By the way, I got there first. I outran him. Old slowpoke Peter. I got there first, verse number four. That other disciple did outrun Peter. He got to the tomb and stood. Stooping down and looking in, he saw the linen clothes or cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Verse 6, then comes Slowpoke, Simon Peter, following him. And he went into the sepulcher and he sees the clothes, the linen clothes lying there. And the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple, uh, which had come first <laughs> to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. And then those disciples went away uh, unto our, their own home. But Mary, verse 11, Mary stood without the sepulcher weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and she looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been laying. And they said unto her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said, because they have taken away my Lord and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had said this, she turned herself back and she saw Jesus as she backs out of the tomb. She saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And who are you seeking? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, said unto him, sir, if you have if you've borne him hence, if you've taken him from here, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said unto her, Mary. And when he called her name, she turned herself and said unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. And Jesus said unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father and to your father and to my God and to your God. And so Mary Magdalene came, verse 18, and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. Now earlier I asked you this all-important question, do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus? 
And I'm absolutely certain that it's true across all of our campuses today that there are answers that were formulated in minds that align with all three of the perspectives of the resurrection that are seen in our text. There are three different people in the text and their view of the resurrection, I'm convinced, is representative of the views of the people who have gathered at Brookstone Church today. And I want to talk to you about those perspectives of resurrection and I want you to determine where it is that you stand First of all, let's think about Mary. Would you write it down? We learn from this text that Mary had a heavy heart and low expectations. It really is true. Mary had a heavy heart and very low expectations. You know, when you think of Mary Magdalene, of all of the women who became followers of Jesus during his lifetime, and there were a number of women who believed in Jesus and became his disciples, um, when you think about all of those women, there are none of them, with the one exception of Mary, the mother of Jesus. But other than her, there are none of the female followers of Jesus that are more notable than is Mary Magdalene. Her love for Jesus and her devotion and faithfulness to Jesus are unparalleled in the gospel texts. We know, for example, that Mary was one of a group that came with Jesus from Galilee on his journey there that last time. And we know that she accompanied him on many of his travels along with his disciples. She was always seen faithfully in the text. We know from the Gospel of Luke that Mary's conversion story is a radical story of, of life transformation. She met Jesus in her hometown of Magdala on the seashore of Galilee. And this is the reason she's called Mary of Magdala or Mary Magdalene, because she met Jesus in her hometown. And Luke tells us that when she met Jesus, he cast out of her seven demons. Imagine the transformation in Mary's life when those seven demons were cast out of her by Jesus. And we think about the life that perhaps she would have lived, the tormented and the, and the life of debauchery and of sin that she would have lived under the influence of those seven demons. In fact, we don't know this for sure, but many people believe that the woman in Luke chapter 7, who is described as the sinner woman, who is at the house of Simon the Pharisee, washing the feet of Jesus with her tears and wiping his feet with her hair. Many people believe that woman was Mary Magdalene. We don't know for sure, but, but it makes sense that it might have been. This woman who had lived a life, perhaps, well, we know the woman in Luke 7, a life of ill repute. And that could well have been Mary, uh, who, out of whom were cast seven demons. We know that she was with Jesus when he was crucified. We know from the Gospel of Matthew that she was present, one of very few who remained present with Jesus all the way to his crucifixion. She watched him die, and when, when the crowds left as he died, she stayed. In fact, she stayed long enough for, for Joseph to go to Pilate, get permission to come and take the body, for Joseph and Nicodemus to take the body down, and Matthew tells us that she went with them to the place of burial. As they put his body in the tomb, she is leaning against the grave, weeping. This is the devotion of Mary Magdalene. 
And so when Jesus is crucified, when Jesus dies, she is crushed. She's crushed in the most unimaginable way. All of her hope is lost. Her Savior, her Lord, the one who had delivered her from such a life, now he has died. And she's brokenhearted. I can also imagine, and I don't, I don't know this for sure because the text doesn't tell us, but I don't think it takes a, a lot of stretching of the imagination to believe that the very moment that Jesus drew his last breath and Mary watched him die, that Satan was whispering in her ear, you're mine now. You think seven was too many. Now he's dead. He can't help you. I will have you Again, I've got to believe that she was tormented by that temptation and that fear that Satan would now be able to take possession of her again. So she's, she's devastated beyond words when Jesus dies. And so she passes the time of Friday night. She passes all day Saturday. She waits until the sun begins to rise on Sunday morning and she makes her way to the tomb. But make no mistake about it, her only expectation in coming to the tomb is not that she would come and find a risen Savior. Her only expectation is that she would find a cold, dead corpse. That's what she's looking for. She comes there to find the body of Jesus in the tomb that she might complete the burial that had to be hurried on Friday evening. And we know this. We know it because of the words that she speaks. When she gets to the tomb and the tomb is empty, the stone is rolled away, she doesn't say, oh, praise the Lord, he's risen. No. Read what she says, verse number two. They've taken him away. We don't know where he is. Look at verse 13. Woman, why are you weeping? Because they've taken my Lord away. I don't know where he is. Look at verse 15. She says to Jesus, she doesn't know it's Jesus at the moment, but she says to him, if you've taken him somewhere, tell me where he is and I'll go and get him. Even after three encounters and an empty tomb, she has very low expectations. Mary was so crushed by the circumstances of her, of that moment, that she had no sense. She could not even imagine a miraculous intervention through a resurrection. And maybe that's you. Maybe that's why you're here this morning. That's how you've arrived this morning, that you are so overwhelmed with life as it is. You're so full of faithlessness and uncertainty. You are so burdened by the weight of whatever it is that you're carrying. And you came to church this morning maybe looking for some help, maybe just to be kind to someone who gave you an invitation, maybe out of pure habit you're here, but you've arrived here this morning with very low expectations that God could or would do anything in your life. That was Mary. And if it's you, I hope you'll stay tuned. The second perspective of the resurrection that you see in this passage is in Peter and John. And I want you to write this down. These two guys, Peter and John, were looking for answers. And so on that Sunday morning, they left the tomb with hope. They were looking for answers. And so they left with hope. Now, I need to say that I'm certain, I'm confident that Peter and John and all the other disciples as well were just as devastated by the death of Jesus as was Mary. 
only maybe for partially different reasons. I, I don't mean to, to, to say that these guys didn't love Jesus. Certainly they did. And, and they were heartbroken, devastated by the suffering that he endured and by his death. However, I think there are some things revealed in the Gospels that would indicate to us that they had a bit of, an, of a motivation that perhaps Mary and the others didn't share. And those were kingdom aspirations. That Jesus had promised he's bringing a kingdom and that he's going to rule and reign and the kingdom of God is coming. And you'll remember that James and John's mother had said, hey, can my guys and my boys sit on your right hand and your left? And, and we see the disciples sometimes arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And, and I'm sure while they loved Jesus and they were heartbroken that he had died, they also were thinking, but what about us? We left everything to follow you. We made our, we staked our claim with you. We were supposed to be in the kingdom and now the kingdom has is, is died. And so they're looking for answers to how their Messiah could promise a kingdom and then, in fact, be crucified. Well, Mary comes running in verse number two up to uh, where they are in Jerusalem in the city and she says they've taken him away and you can imagine her heart pounding and she's out of breath. I've been to the tomb and he's, he's not there. And so they immediately, Peter and John, run from where they are down to the tomb. I don't know why the others didn't run. I assume they were there as well. I don't know why they didn't go, but the text tells us that Peter and John run down to the tomb. John gets there first and he looks in the tomb, but he doesn't go into the tomb. If you've been there, you know that you can look into the tomb and see the place where the body would lay from outside. He goes and he looks in. I don't know why he doesn't go in. Maybe he's afraid. It's not every day that you go walking into a tomb, right? And so maybe there's a bit of fear that, that he didn't want to go in that place where the dead are. And, or maybe it was a sense of reverence, right? If you go to a cemetery, you step over graves. You don't step on them. You, you're, you're mindful of where you're walking. Maybe he knows this is the tomb of Jesus and there's reverence and respect for it. So it doesn't go in. Maybe, maybe it's not his property. I know it's not his property. So maybe he's thinking this is Joseph's property and I don't need to go bolting, bolting in there. So he's just looking in. Well, as he's standing there looking in, the Bible tells us that, that Peter shows up uh, in verses six and seven. Peter comes running uh, up to the tomb. And in, in Simon Peter fashion, what does he do? <laughs> he's like a bull in a china shop, man. He didn't even slow down. He just runs right in. And the tomb is big enough. You can get in there. You can look around. There are two sides to it. And he begins to investigate. He sees the linen cloths laying there. These cloths, bloodied, no doubt, bloodied, that Jesus had been wrapped in. He sees the spices have fallen out onto the, onto the, the, uh, the pad etched into the stone and onto the ground. He looks over to, the, to one side and there's the napkin that had been wrapped around Jesus' face. And it's, it's laying there by itself. He investigates it and then he comes out. And when he comes out, then John decides, well, okay, I guess it's all right. I'll go in. And John goes into the tomb, the Bible says in verse number eight. And, and after these two men get there and they see what is there to be investigated, they come out and verses number eight and nine tell us that when they come out, they believe. They believe. Now, verse number nine is interesting. Because verse 9 says they don't yet understand the scriptures that said that he would rise again from the dead. What scriptures is John referring to? 
He's probably referring to Psalm 16 in verse 10. You can go read it later. But Psalm 16 verse 10 says that God would not allow his Messiah to see corruption. He wouldn't allow his body to decompose. So it was a prophecy of his resurrection, but they didn't get that. They didn't understand that. But it's not just the psalmist. Jesus had talked about his resurrection, hadn't he? More than once. Jesus had said to them, I'm going to be crucified and on the third day I'll rise again. In John chapter 2, Jesus said to the Pharisees, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. They thought he meant the stone temple in Jerusalem. He meant his own body. But for all of the Psalms and for all of the words of Jesus about his resurrection, they didn't get it. They hadn't put it all together yet. But they come out of that tomb. They don't fully understand what's happening, but they begin to have belief that, that maybe in fact Jesus is alive. They haven't really been transformed by it yet. They're not convinced of it yet, but they have some hope. And maybe that's you. Maybe like Peter and John, you've come to church today and you, you, you've come here with the burdens that they were carrying as well, uncertainty about your future, maybe aspirations that you thought would come to pass and they haven't come to pass. And you're believing that, yeah, maybe Jesus is alive, but does that really affect me? Does it really make a difference in my life? was a third perspective of the resurrection. And it's back to Mary, but it's Mary's second chance now to believe in the resurrection. I want you to write it down. Here's third and finally, Mary had an encounter with Jesus. And after that encounter, she left the tomb rejoicing. Now the Bible tells us that when Peter and John come down to the tomb, Mary came back with them. She tagged along, ran along with them. And after they leave the tomb now, believing that Jesus is alive, she's not convinced. She's still weeping. And the Bible says that she looks into the tomb now and she sees two angels in white sitting, one at the head, the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been laying. That's verse 12. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she says, because they've taken away my Lord. I don't know where he is. Now she's talking to angels. Does she know they're angels? I don't know if she knows they're angels or not. Maybe in her grief, it doesn't matter to her who she's talking to. But she says, I don't know where he's at. And she backs out of the tomb. And if you've been to that tomb, you know, you kind of need to back out of it or bow your, you know, lean low to get out. And so she backs out and she turns. And when she turns, she sees Jesus standing there. Now, she doesn't know that it's Jesus. Why does she, doesn't she know that it's Jesus? I don't know. Maybe he concealed his identity like he did on the road to Emmaus. That's possible. Maybe the sun's just rising and now all she can see in the sunlight is his silhouette and she can't really make out who it is. Maybe he's behind a tree limb. I don't know. But she doesn't know that it's Jesus and she's, he says, who are you looking for? And she said, if you've taken him somewhere, tell me and I'll go get him. And then the Bible says that Jesus calls her name. Mary. If y'all listening on campuses, shout amen. Do you believe nobody could say Mary like Jesus could say Mary? Amen. Mary. And when she hears that voice and he calls her name, she falls. She grasps for his feet. Rabboni, which means master or teacher. Rabbi. She falls to worship him. And she has this encounter, this moment where she now knows that Jesus is alive. Verse 17 is interesting when he says to her, don't touch me, don't hold me here, for I've not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them that I ascend to my father and to your father and to my God and your God. It's really interesting that Jesus says, don't, don't touch me, because later on he doesn't say that, right? Matthew tells us about his encounter with a group of women and they come and hold him and he doesn't say a thing about it. 
And when he's with Thomas, he says, Thomas, look, touch me. Put your hand in the wound in my side. So why to Mary does he say, don't touch me? A lot of possibilities. I don't know for sure. Maybe he's saying, don't, hold, don't, don't stay here and hold me. Go tell my brother. Go get my brothers. Go get to work. Maybe he's saying, don't try to hold me here. I'm, I'm, I've done greater things. I'm going to ascend to the Father now. Don't try to keep me here on the earth. Maybe that's it. I don't really think so. Many people believe, and I happen to be one of them, that Jesus, this early morning resurrection, he still has redemptive work to do. And so he says, don't hold me here. You go tell my brothers I've risen. I'm ascending to my father. I believe Jesus in that moment literally went back to heaven. Hebrews talks about Jesus entering the holy of holies in heaven, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own precious blood to uh, obtain eternal redemption for us. I believe Jesus went before the Father, offered his blood for our sacrifice for our sin, and then returned back to the earth where he then sees the others and they are able then to touch him. For whatever reason, he says, don't hold me. Go and tell them that I have risen. So verse number 18, she does that. She runs back to where the disciples are and she says to them, I have seen the Lord. A totally different approach this time. From panic in the morning now until praise there in the afternoon or later in the morning. Now, maybe this is you. In fact, I long for this to be you, that you will have an encounter with Jesus so that you will know what Mary knew, that this Christ who loved you and died for you has risen from the dead and that if you will have an encounter with him, if you will enter into a relationship with him, you can experience the life-changing, life-giving transformation that he offers. I want that to be yours. Mary knew in this moment, she knew it personally, she knew it experientially, what the Bible would go on to tell all of us theologically, that the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Let me me just say it plainly. The resurrection of Jesus means for us that we can be justified. Mary experienced this, and I want you to experience it, that that because Jesus has risen, we are justified. Romans chapter 4 says that Jesus was delivered for our offenses, but he was raised for our justification. Do you know what justification means? It means that the righteousness of Jesus is transferred to you. So that your sin is carried away and the righteousness that Jesus has is given to you as if it were yours. If Jesus had remained dead, his death would have done us no good. But he rose from the dead so that we might be justified. The second thing that the resurrection of Jesus does is it tells us that we can live a new life in the spirit. Because Jesus has raised from the dead, the Holy Spirit will infill us and give us New life, Romans chapter six tells us this. And thirdly and finally, because Jesus has risen from the dead, we can live forever with him in heaven. Let me read to you just quickly, First Peter chapter one. Listen to verses three and four. Peter says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a living hope. We have been born again to a living hope How? By the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen, if y'all are listening, shout amen. The hope we have is ours because Jesus has risen. If Jesus hadn't risen, there would be no hope. But we have hope because he has risen. And what is that hope? Verse number four says, it is hope of an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, that will never fade away, that is reserved in heaven for you. That's our hope. And it's purchased by the resurrection. And so listen, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb that morning expecting nothing. Low expectations. 
She came there burdened and broken and expecting to find a cold, dead body and her life to never be changed. And she left there praising God with her life changed. I want that to be you, no matter where you are this morning. The very last time you see Mary Magdalene, and we, we, we see Mary Magdalene when she's converted. Maybe we see her in Luke 7, washing the feet of Jesus. We see her at the tomb. We see her in Jerusalem. We see her along the way. We, we see her at the crucifixion. You see her a lot in the Bible, but do you know the very last place you see Mary? The very last appearance of Mary on the pages of Scripture is John chapter 20, verse 18. She runs off of the pages of Scripture, shouting, I've seen the Lord! He's alive. And her voice resounds even until today. And it is my hope for my life and it's my hope for your life that when you and I run off the pages of this life that our voices will still be heard that we shouted, I have seen the Lord. He's alive. I want that to be your story.